Uh, hello there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical realities of today. Now, what do I got for you today? Uh, we're going to be all over the place today, but some general topics we'll discuss is peace moving forward in the Middle East. We're going to talk about the Ukraine war and some of the developments around that. And then we're going to get into some latest actions on the part of the U.S. and the diplomatic field. All that and more coming up. Let's get into the rapid fire news. So today we have House Republicans. Well, not today, but this week we have House Republicans led by Matt Gates. You'll remember him and a number of the other MAGA Republicans who led the Speaker of the House vote, or more accurately held it up to get concessions out of McCarthy, the current Speaker of the House. He and a number of other MAGA Republicans have introduced, or they're planning to introduce, they haven't done it yet, they're planning to introduce another war powers resolution on the withdrawal of U.S. troops from Somalia. Now, a few weeks ago, they did this with Syria, and on that one, we had an actual vote, and it was defeated uh, about uh, 103 in favor and uh, 331, I believe, uh, against, and that's in favor of getting out of Syria and uh, uh, against getting out of Syria, so... We're still in Syria, and then, what, a week later, you get stories about American soldiers getting bombed by Iranian missiles and artillery? And it's like, well, now we have someone to blame on this side of the aisle, or at the very least, we can see more accurately who is actually to blame for American troops being put in harm's way, and that's Congress, because they have all the authority to get out, because this is... We are not there by way of an official declaration of war. So it's not like you have to sit down and negotiate a peace deal. You can just revoke the war powers. They choose not to do so. And then our troops end up getting shot at. They end up getting bombed. They end up getting they end up stepping on an IED and then losing a leg or an arm or some other limb or even their life. So I am very much in favor of these developments. I like that he's doing this. Uh, Matt Gates, I like that they're doing this. And I hope that we continue to do this, but mostly I hope that eventually we can get a Congress that actually votes in favor of getting out of these places, in favor of getting out of Syria, in favor of getting out of Somalia. A lot of people don't even know that we are in Somalia, for that matter. Now, if only if only they could extend this courtesy, not just to Ukraine, well... I assume that they'll get around doing this with Ukraine and pulling American personnel out of Ukraine. But I hope that they extend this same courtesy to Taiwan, where we now have on the books 400, well, technically one to 400, but we know how the, how the game is played. It's probably more than 400. We have 400 personnel in Taiwan now. They're training the Taiwanese on how to defend themselves from China. Now, what that's going to do for them remains to be seen, but what that's going to do for us is get us into their war. Because if China invades Taiwan, and it it's made more likely that they're going to do that, the more we entrench ourselves in Taiwan. But 
if China invades Taiwan and they attack with all these scads and hordes of missiles, well, that means Americans are going to be killed because our government approved sending our military and our military personnel to places they didn't need to be. So when Americans die in this war, we'll all know who was responsible. And sure, you can point to the Chinese who threw the missiles, but first and foremost, you have to point to the Congress who sent our troops to places where they didn't need to be. Why are they in Taiwan? Taiwan is not a state. They're not a territory. So why are they there? You put American troops in harm's way. So I hope that this uh, effort by led by Matt Gates, but him and the MAGA Republicans, and even the progressives, they voted in favor of getting troops out uh, on the Syria vote. So credit where credit's due. But I hope that this continues and we start bring, shedding more light on a lot of the wars that America is currently fighting that have zero authorization from Congress because it's not a declared war. We're just going along with it for the sake of going along with it. Well, they're corrupt, so they have their own personal gains. But if Congress isn't going to declare the war, then we need to get out. And I don't see any bills introduced to declare formal war on the Syrian government or on any of these places that we have our troops in. So that's something I believe is a very positive development. In Sudan, we've been talking about Sudan the last two weeks, uh, the Sudanese army and the rapid support forces, that's the militias, they have agreed to extend their ceasefire for three days. Uh, well, this is at the time of me writing this three days. So as of now, if that ceasefire was honored, we're talking more along the lines of uh, perhaps a day. But the ceasefire, as far as I can tell, hasn't really been honored very much. But but the fact that they both agreed to the ceasefire, at least on paper, does still promise a relatively quick end to the fighting, which is uh, a good thing. And we hope that that's what happens. Although you kind of need to stop shooting at each other for the ceasefire to work. It, it's not really a ceasefire if you don't cease firing. <laughs> but... I don't know. I was I was skeptical about the Ethiopian ceasefire back during the Tigray War, and that agreement, it took a while to fully work out into a real ceasefire. You had a lot of blunders along the way with the, the central government declaring a unilateral ceasefire and not even consulting the other side, which resulted in an embarrassing defeat on the battlefield. But uh, perhaps this ceasefire here is it'll be just as successful and because maybe it's taking that attempted peace in Ethiopia and is modeling off of that for a peace in Sudan as Ethiopia's civil war and that peace deal wasn't that long ago in fact it was just last year that that war came to a close so we might have a functional ceasefire within the next few weeks if this trend continues and if it goes that way you know Again, both sides have to honor the ceasefire. They have to rein in all their fighters to get them to stop shooting at each other. And they have to have patience with the process and with the other side. That being said, we do have some hope that this conflict is going to end relatively soon. We'll see how it goes, though. But there's that. Uh, we have... Uh, well, since we're still on the subject of the war in Sudan, we have 148 Somalians who have successfully fled Sudan. Uh, they went to Ethiopia, so they're probably still en route to Somalia itself. Uh, oh, would you look at that? Uh, we come full circle from U.S. 
war powers resolution being proposed to withdraw troops from Somalia. And now we're talking about Somalians going home from Sudan. But we have Japan, who have who has a uh, recognized South Korea as a preferred trade country. They have reappointed South Korea to that position as a preferred trade country. They're trying to de-escalate with South Korea as they've had very shaky and rocky relations for decades. So I guess this is part of a an attempt to not have rocky, shaky relations. But, you know, it's a good thing, and we'll see what comes of it. It might just be a drop in the bucket. It might not do much, but it's something. It's certainly a development that we can't really gloss over in a time when countries around the world are doing trade in local currencies, which is in and of itself a revolution in global trade. When you think about how long countries have just gone along with using the dollar for all their transactions. So this event might actually be more significant than it looks like at first. So we'll see what comes with this. We have Afghanistan claiming to have killed the person responsible for the Kabul bombings. And that is the the person responsible for the bombing that killed 13 U.S. Marines back during the, the withdrawal from Afghanistan when we made the fateful decision to conduct the withdrawal at the last minute from Kabul International Airport instead of, I don't know, Bagram, a nice secluded location with a very large airstrip that was purely for military purposes. So no, there's no other planes getting in the way and there's no other flights you have to worry about getting in the way. Air traffic control is purely there for you and your military craft getting people out of this country. Easy slam dunk, and we failed. But now the Afghanis, uh, that is the Taliban, who now rules over Afghanistan, the Afghanis are now claiming to have killed the person responsible for that bombing, and if it is true, then they have done a very good deed. And also tells us that they have no interest in coming to get us, you know, we were always sold on the lie that the Taliban was, they hated us for our freedoms and for our democracy and for our equal rights. And if we didn't go fight them over there, we'd have to fight them over here. Well, we're not fighting them over there. So when are they going to come over here? Just asking for a friend, of course, that friend is uh, me. <laughs> but yeah, I uh, I hope that it's true. But in the more broader sense, it does demonstrate that we do not, in fact, have to be enemies with everybody. And if we leave countries alone, even after fighting a war, countries will leave us alone. Heck, we might even find it's easy to cooperate with countries when we leave them alone, like Trump walking across the DMZ to North Korea four times in one day without getting shot. I have no reason to believe that these countries we are told are our enemies are actually our enemies and our adversaries. Uh, that's uh, that's my two cents on the matter. And then we have, last but not least, Santiago Peña. I believe that's how you pronounce it. Santiago Peña winning the presidential election in Paraguay. And that is the rapid fire news. And we'll get into the somewhat messy, but we'll get into the meat of this episode in just a moment. Alrighty, let's get into the meat of today's episode, and we'll start with peace in the Middle East. Now, over the last few weeks, we've talked about the rapprochement between Iran and Arabia, 
brokered by China, the massive deal, which was that they were going to normalize relations and reopen their embassies in each other's countries. Then we saw, and this is a part of the longer series of, you know, detente that we've seen with Saudi Arabia and Iran as a part of what I believe to be a general uh, restructuring, a restructuring, a reorienting of Saudi Arabia and, you know, reevaluating its position in its own neighborhood, so to speak. We've seen them sort of back off from the war in Yemen, which we'll actually get into in a moment. We've seen them back off from that. We've seen them uh, not try to get too hostile with Iran. We've seen them allow Iranian diplomats to actually physically appear in the Organization of Islamic Cooperation, uh, which is headquartered in Saudi Arabia. We've seen them allow the Iranians on Saudi Arabian soil so that they could take their seat in that council. We've seen them switch sides, essentially, with regards to the war in Syria. They went from trying to overthrow Assad in Syria to now they're supporting Assad, they're backing Assad. And now they have normalized relations with Iran. So what we have now is the Iranian president, Ibrahim Raisi, going to visit Syria as a part of an official invitation by Bashar al-Assad, which, again, furthers my belief that the Syrian civil war is really in its final days. Every major regional power here, aside from Israel and the United States, every major power is now on side with the government of Syria, that is, that of Bashar al-Assad. So now the Iranian president's visiting Syria. We had, I believe it was the UAE, I believe it was the UAE, uh, saying that it was time for Syria to rejoin its fellow Arab brothers and essentially signaling the UAE's switch to supporting Assad as well. Trying to keep my S's in check here. But we, we've seen this general trend towards peace in the Middle East. And we saw a few days, well, not a few days, a few weeks ago, the Russians coming in and brokering a normalization of relations with between Turkey and Syria as well. There still hasn't been a direct talks between Erdogan and Assad, but that's not too far off from what's going to happen. Eventually, you're going to have all the major powers meeting with Assad to really lay out the framework for what the Middle East is going to look like. I believe we're going to see a major diplomatic uh, event. Now, this is going to be after a lot of the hard work has already been done, but, you know, we're going to see a, I believe we'll see like a, almost like a, a Vienna Congress after the, the Napoleonic Wars had ended and they, the European powers had to get together, redraw the, the borders of Europe and really establish what the European order was going to look like in a post-Napoleon world. Now, I don't think there's going to be much redrawing of boundaries here in this situation, but I think something similar is going to happen where the powers are going to get together and they're going to say, this is how things are going to go. And of course, this effort is going to be mainly, primarily spearheaded by Russia and China, Russia's a little preoccupied with the war in Ukraine, but not nearly as preoccupied as the United States is. We can only react while the Russians and the Chinese are being proactive. 
So I see that that's something in the not too distant future that we're looking at happening in the Middle East. And it is a really good thing. I'm you have so many people uh, fear mongering about how China's displacing the United States and displacing U.S. influence in this region. Well, shoot, I say good. If the people in the Middle East look to China to try to solve their problems, then they won't bother us with them. Not that they ever really wanted us there. But if they don't drag us into their issues, well, that means we get to stay out of said issues. This is an objectively good thing for us. And as someone who's advocated the United States going home for, uh, on record, at least two years now, if we ever went home, the multipolar world would have had to come into being as just out of necessity. So the fact that the multipolar world order is here now, I have no reason to be opposed to that. In fact, it can help accelerate the process of my country going home and my troops going home. Like the fact that we have people in Congress talking about getting the troops out of these places and the fact that we have so much more criticism openly of U.S. foreign policy is in part due to the massive major changes that are occurring around the world with the emergence of the new multipolar world order. People are talking about Ukraine and why you, what the United States are doing in Ukraine. People are talking about what Europe's uh, importance is to the United States. Now, they, most people are still on board the America has to be involved or the West has to be in solidarity or you know things like that. But I, I think that those opinions will change in time. People are talking about America's commitment to Taiwan. I believe that will be a very hot topic of discussion in the coming weeks and months. But people are people are talking about these things the United States is doing around the world. Pe people are finding out that we had troops in Africa. People are finding out and talking about all these things. And if people are talking about them, a lot of them are going to go, well, I think we should be here, but I don't think we should be over there. You know, people will try to take the middle of the road approach. But the, when you do that on all these different places and regions, the one thing that everyone's going to have in common is, yeah, I don't want to be there. They'll disagree on where there specifically is. But the one thing they can agree on is let's get out. And it, when that becomes the norm in America, it'll be one gloriously slippery slope into isolationism. That's how I think it's going to play out. It'll take time. And of course, uh, I'm going to have to deal with probably a war in Taiwan before we get there. But I believe that's what's going to happen here. But as that's happening here, as we're reevaluating publicly our stances, now the administration likes to stand by the status quo, which is, oh, we're going to defend Taiwan, we're going to defend this, we're going we're to continue supporting Ukraine. Well, that's going to fall apart because the status quo is not maintainable in a time of great change like this. So that's not even a viable option. It's going to collapse. So as the rest of us, the, the political opposition and the general populace are reevaluating America's role in the world, you have the world reevaluating its own structure. Are we going to continue using dollars or are we going to use local currency? They're choosing local currency. Are we going to continue using Western financial institutions or are we going to you know, step aside and use our own institutions? They're choosing to use their own institutions. The Russians have their own interbank communication system. The Chinese have SIPs. Uh, the Indians are probably going to set up their own thing. And then you have India and Indonesia agreeing to do trade in rupees. You have China and ASEAN agreeing to 
essentially create an alternative uh, credit card payment system. They want to stop using Visa and MasterCard. You have little countries in Africa choosing to tie their currency to gold so they can not get away from dollars. And well, actually, it wasn't even about dollars. It was just about their the value of their own currency. They're going to, oh, you know, we have a currency shortage, so we're going to we're going to start getting some more gold so that we can use gold and exchange that for currencies that we need instead of holding on to us dollars and th that that blew a hole in us hegemony by itself you have these massive changes and with the middle east in particular you see peace marching across the region iran saudi arabia peace you have the saudi arabian ambassador to yemen most recently, uh, that the ambassador's name is Mohammed bin Saeed al-Jaber. He has met with the Houthi leader, Mahdi al-Mashat. They have met. Meaning, the war in Yemen is now on its way out as well. The Saudis are capitalizing on their newfound relationship with the Iranians. And that's huge. All the major wars in the Middle East are coming to a close. And I've been saying this for the past few weeks, but now we have even more concrete evidence that that is indeed happening. Now, of course, this leaves Israel uh, ass out in the wind, but it's not like they have to be. The, the Israelis can choose to change their policy whenever they want. They just don't want to. And they're going to be left holding the bag, just like the, well, I would say just like the United States, except if the United States is left holding the bag, we'll just go home. <laughs> if the Israelis are left holding the bag, well, they're left holding the bag. They don't get to retreat to the other side of the ocean. They live in the Middle East. So if they continue violating the sovereignty of their neighbors, eventually they're going to create a coalition against them. A massive diplomatic coalition. You have the Sudanese accepting a Russian military base there. You had the Egyptians... What were the Egyptians up to? There was something major that happened with Egypt, but I can't put my finger on it right now. It has slipped me because I don't have it in my notes. But the Egyptians are moving towards this multipolar world as well. You have Turkey and Syria getting together. Arabia and Syria getting together. Iran and Syria were already together. Russia and Syria were already together. Iran has reached its influence out to Lebanon when Lebanon went through its crisis and the Iranians were providing them oil, which uh, another thing that I was going to talk about later on, but since we're on the topic, the U.S. is seizing Iranian oil uh, tankers. Uh, the Israelis were doing that as well, which, you know, really says a lot. It says a lot when you're, a country goes through a crisis. You say, OK, well, we're going to we're going to give you some oil. And the so supposed do-gooders in the region, the United States and Israel, go out of their way to destroy the oil and seize the oil so that it doesn't get to its target location. That's insane. Uh, but, yeah, you have a resurgence of national identities who are all united, not in opposition to one another, but united in their goal for peace. They are reasonably fed up with the wars. I mean, there was a, that famous anecdote about the Afghanistan war where 
people ask, people ask the new fighters, the new Taliban, well, why'd you do? Well, why'd you stop? They said, we got tired of fighting the old man's war. And it was that simple. Everybody in this region is tired of war. And the Chinese and the Russians together are giving them the option of getting away from the United States, the main pro provocateur of the war. Israel by itself can do some damage, but against the entire region, they'd be effectively contained without Russia or China being present. But the Russians and the Chinese are going to be present, the Russians militarily and the Chinese economically. And if Israel doesn't readjust its foreign policy, it will, I believe, find itself left in the dust. Because the Israelis are not going to be able to compete with Russian equipment. Not Russian. If the Syrians and the Lebanese and the Jordanese and the Jordanese are on board with the multipolar world and the Egyptians. Uh, oh, right. The Egyptians were making major arms purchases. Uh-oh. Uh no, there was something else going on with Egypt, but I just cannot for the life of me remember what was going on. But if these countries start purchasing more Russian-made military equipment, and on top of that, they're getting economic assistance and development projects from China, Israel's going to be the one to fall behind. Israel's going to become the backwater as all these countries link up with the East and the massive markets of the East that they can reach either by water or if the U.S. Navy is being a pest, like it usually is, they can take a high-speed rail and just be there in a matter of hours anyway. And it's cheaper than plane. And to power that, you need to create corridors, you know, where you generate the power for the rail. Yeah. Why stick to the U.S. world order where you can be sanctioned at any moment and where your trade with a sanctioned country, even if it is your lifeline to economic prosperity, can just be cut off at the whims of the United States. Why deal with that when you can switch over to the Chinese? Oh, and the Russian military is going to protect you too? It, it, depending on where you are, of course. The Russians are not omnipotent. But, oh, we can get a little bit of protection from the Russian military? Oh, we can purchase Russian military equipment? Oh, okay, cool. The Russians will train us on how to use that? Oh, and then we can get a railroad, we can get highways, we can get uh, energy production, we can start developing our own resources with the Chinese? Oh, okay, cool. Oh, the Russians will help us with nuclear power plants? Cool. The Russians are going to supply us with natural gas because Turkey is now a gas hub for Russian natural gas? Cool. What's the United States offering? <laughs> what's what's the United States offering? <clears throat> and this isn't me saying that we should be offering something that I want to go home. All right. If we offer absolutely nothing, that's perfectly fine with me. Just don't, you know, play pretend and say, we're gonna give you nothing, but you're not allowed to go to the people that are offering you something. Well, that that doesn't make any sense. But what's the United States offering? Oh, you can use our dollar that we inflate constantly by printing money. You can use our dollar that that we can that we will then use to sanction you the the second you do anything we don't like. We'll freeze your assets that you hold in dollars. Like, what's the incentive here? You're going to provide military assistance to us, okay? But then you want to control everything that happens in our country? Well, that's the Russians don't do that. Contrary to popular belief in the United States, of course. Are you gonna are you gonna invest economically? Or, 
I, I get that you're, you're going to build schools and roads, but you bomb the schools and roads. So it's 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 not really it's not really a net positive here. If you're just going to destroy the schools and roads, we we prefer that you build more schools and roads. But if you're going to bomb them and then run and then ruin the roads by driving tanks on them, well, shoot, what are we getting out of this? <clears throat> like the multipolar world just has so much more to offer. If you're talking about markets, China and India and Indonesia together, that's a lot. That's, well, China and India by themselves is like, what, 3 billion people? Three-eighths of the world's population? Who needs the Western markets then? The The Asian powers are rising in terms of wealth anyway. China's already, by the metrics that I've decided to go along with, which is purchasing power parity, if according to that, the Chinese are already the largest economy on the planet. So why do you need the United States? Sure, the United States is a pretty big market for a country of our size, you know, population-wise. But with China there, with India there rising as well, their population is still growing and they're becoming wealthier as well. With Japan and South Korea who are and Taiwan, who are already wealthy countries. High with high-end economies, so the Chinese are the biggest manufacturers. You have Indian uh, call service centers, and increasingly a little bit of Indian uh, manufacturing. You have food from South, from Asia. It's like, what what more do I need? What more do I need? So, as the Chinese and the Russians are coming in with their new multipolar world order, we can see that the nations of the Middle East are moving towards peace and because why wouldn't they because what what's being offered to them is naturally bringing peace it's bringing them together even though they might not like each other they can see hmm if i put up with you i can have the greatest of times i can go down in history as one of the greatest leaders of my nation because i made this easy slam dunk choice and all i have to do is not shoot at you all i have to do is not fight you my neighbor and i can get the russian security i can have russian security and chinese money and it's going to go towards developing my country well okay shoot I, i'll take the deal and we also have arabia pressuring the yemeni coalition government to agree to an eight-month ceasefire with the houthis again capitalizing on their newfound relationship with iran Peace is marching across the region in the Middle East. The U.S. is being squeezed out, so we're going to go home, whether we want to or not. And then the Israelis are either going to have to, A, change their ways, or B, they're going to get flabbergasted by a military coalition. Now, I hope it doesn't come to that second option, but if they don't stop, then it will. So... We'll see what becomes of the Middle East. I really like the direction that the region is heading in. It's certainly not something that anybody would have predicted, say, five years ago. The Abraham Accords were nice, but those were deals done with Israel. And the Israelis have thrown all of that potential goodwill out the window with everybody except for Morocco, maybe. Morocco's doing its own thing, and Morocco is not in the region either. So... You threw away the best shot you had at renegotiating your place in this region.
Israel really could have built off of the, the Abraham Accords and used that as a wonderful platform to position themselves well in this new multipolar world order, specifically as that world order pertains to the Middle East. Israel could have done something great for itself, but they threw it away. So we'll see what happens then. But now I want to talk about uh, the Ukraine war and not necessarily anything specific, but more of a a conglomeration of things that I've collected over the course of the last week. Again, I said this is a pretty messy episode, so I'm just going to try to keep everything coherent as I go from topic to topic. And I just have these overarching things we're talking about. So we'll, we'll just get into this. We have both sides in Ukraine, and I'll just use this to preface the and lay context for everything else we're talking about because uh, both sides in the conflict seem to be holding their breath in anticipation for Ukraine's coming offensive. That offensive was delayed until May, and, well, it's May. Ukraine's artillery situation is about as poopy as it can get, so without some further injection of shells, I don't see what people are expecting of them. I really don't. I've made that clear for the past few months, quite honestly. I really don't see it. And I certainly don't see them achieving anything that they have listed in their stated aims. These rather ambitious objectives that they have, which is to march all the way to the Sea of Azov and retake Crimea along the way. That ain't happening. This is not what we're two. This is what we're one. There is no great breakthrough here unless you wither away your opponent's forces to where they literally just can't fight you back once you make the breakthrough. No, this is what we're won. And the Ukrainians are the ones close to being withered down. And the Russians, when they make their breakthrough, it's going to be a very, it's going to be a faster collapse than what we're seeing right now, where the Ukrainians can at least hide behind the illusion of a equal fight where it's a stalemate, the Russians are taking heavy casualties, but and we're taking heavy casualties, but we're making them bleed for every inch. They can hide behind that narrative right now because they still have the ability to hold the line, but they've thrown away everything in Bakhmut. And now we're talking about Ukraine throwing away everything that they have left in this offensive. The documents that were leaked from the Pentagon showed us they had, what, 10,000 shells on hand at any given time, and they're firing around 1,000 a day? When the Russians are firing 20 times that much on the low end? How are you going to win that war? How are you going to win that fight? What What are you going to do in this offensive that's going to change that calculus? I don't see it. What I do see is the Ukrainians going in on this offensive, losing it all, throwing away more men, more material, all the new stuff that they just got, assuming that all those you know, hundreds of thousands of shells actually materialized from the EU and from the United States. If that materializes, they're going to throw it away on this offensive. And then the Russians, I believe, will begin the counteroffensive. Since the Ukrainians will have largely abandoned their defenses, the Russians can then use that as an opportunity to push them back and keep them from resettling into the defenses. So you keep the momentum going. So I see that that's what's going to happen rather than them 
doing this glorious Sherman march to the sea, the Sea of Azov, the Ukrainian government has announced, by the way, and this sort of further furthers my argument here that I don't think they're going to be successful in this endeavor, the Ukrainian government has announced the extension of the air raid alert to the entirety of the country. That, that eventually, that, oh goodness. Now, before they had this alert going on in the eastern parts of the country and, and a little bit in the central parts of the country, and what that is is essentially for their air raid systems to be on alert in the event of an air raid. Now their entire country is on alert. The, the fact they felt the need to do that says that the air war has ramped up to that level. Or, or they fear that it's going to. So they're doing this as a preemptive measure. And we've been talking about the increasing role that the Russian Air Force has been playing over the past few weeks, ever since we found out that the Russians, uh, not the Russians, that the Ukrainians were getting low on air defense ammo, which was then confirmed uh, by the leaked documents from the Pentagon. And now with more and more of the evidence that we can observe on the battlefield, the increasing presence of the Russian Air Force and the, um, the Ukrainians now putting their entire country on an air raid alert rather than just defending their airspace. So the Russian Air Force has come. <clears throat> I was wondering where they were at, but they're here now. And with the Russian Air Force being active, now again, we have to ask, how is this offensive going to succeed? The Ukrainians do not have control over their own skies right now. How is this offensive going to succeed? Because the last offensives, the Russians had very minimal air cover. Well, now the Russian Air Force is here in increasing force, doing increasing damage. What, you think they're not going to retarget? They're, gonna, they're not going to set their sights on all those juicy Ukrainian troops moving across the battlefield? No, they're going to bomb you. <laughs> They're going to bomb you right alongside the Russian artillery. And it's going to just absolutely poop on any potential offensive capacity that the Ukrainians can muster. They're just going to be blown out the water. I don't see this offensive succeeding. And yet, they're still going along with it. Ukraine has what they have done is managed a successful drone raid on a Russian oil depot in Crimea. They destroyed four tanks, and that's oil tanks, not the military vehicle. They destroyed four tanks, uh, and of the four drones that they used, two got through, which is how they destroyed those tanks, and damaged the depot. One was shot down by Russian air defense, and another, and this is the interesting part, another, the fourth one, was taken down through radio electronic means that's just a fancy way of saying electronic warfare so they, they didn't even have to shoot it it was taken down through radio electronic means which i believe that this is a, a capability that will partially uh, stress the partially here i believe that this capability electronic warfare can partially provide an answer to hypersonic missiles because there's no way you're going to shoot that thing down in the same way that the current slate of U.S. anti-ballistic missiles uh, are trying to do with regular ballistic missiles with a 50-50 success rate on a good day. If we have 50-50 success with regular ballistic missiles, uh, good luck with this hypersonic. You're, you're going to either need lasers, uh, 
some sort of electronic jamming woofer, maybe if you can get a missile that moves fast enough, would combine with an AI system that can target and do and go through the motions of responding to that missile faster than a human could, maybe, maybe. AI is getting better. And if you can have a missile that moves at least as fast as the other missile, sure, maybe you can you can deal with that. Maybe, but that, that depends on the range, that depends on the distances involved, because you're talking about something that's moving really, really, really fast. So if you're, if there's a second delay, well, it's the missiles already got through. And then even if you fire your missile, your hypersonic anti-missile, it's, well, your hypersonic air defense missile, it's just not going to hit its target. It's too late. So I believe that electronic warfare is partially an answer to hypersonic missiles, although that has yet to be proven. This is just my assumption here. But uh, I'm looking at it. I'm looking at it. And we also have the Russian artillery, the rocket artillery, upping the ante. Uh, And wow. Wow, wow, wow. And I say wow three times because... Well, the Russians aren't just using their rocket artillery to fire regular missiles. I was listening to some more from the Duran, and Alexander brought up a particular instance of the Russians deploying thermobaric missiles. Now, this is something I haven't heard the Russians doing since the beginning of the war. Uh, Same with the hypersonic missiles, where they they came out the gate swinging and then suddenly sort of... uh, They held off on using these weapons... Probably because they didn't, maybe because they didn't have that many of them. Maybe they took their time building and getting their production lines up. Maybe they just didn't want to overuse the weapons for the time being. And they wanted a gradual escalation if they were going to commit to the war at all. Because remember, they they went in suing for peace. So they didn't, they didn't want to go in and flatten the Ukrainians. They came in suing for peace for the unofficial Minsk III agreement which was that Ukraine would recognize the sovereignty of the Donbass and they'd recognize Crimea as Russia. That was what was going to be the peace deal. Uh, But now we're starting to see not just the hypersonic missiles come back into the picture, but the thermobaric missiles come back into the picture. And for those uh, unaware of what a thermobaric missile is, these are missiles that when they detonate, they suck the oxygen out of the surrounding area and then ignited like it gets really really hot they incinerate everything within the blast it's like that it's like a nuclear weapon in terms of the temperatures not not in terms of the, the power of the explosion it doesn't like destroy a city you're not going to destroy a city with a thermobaric unless you made one big enough to do so but this is a very as close to a tactical nuke as you're going to get without actually using a tactical nuke. In fact, you can even say it's better than a tactical nuke because you can you can be more precise with thermobaric. Much more precise. You can destroy a smaller area and ensure that you have eviscerated everything within that area. Now, this is a weapon that they have rightly been reluctant, seemingly, to use in large quantities. But when I was listening to the Duran... Alexander brought up a particular instance of Russia using it, these missiles, and I believe it was around Krasivyar or Krasnaya Gora, I forget which one, uh, but it was a, a forested area. 
But instead of using these missiles one at a time, fired from like a, a long range rocket system or from the air, they were using these and they were firing them from multiple rocket launch systems. So the, the kind of uh, missiles, not like the HIMARS where it's accurate one, maybe for a couple at a time missiles, but like a genuine, you can fire off a salvo type multiple rocket launch system and they were using thermal barracks instead of regular missiles and again this is in a forested area so you can imagine the type of damage that a a bomb designed to set everything on fire is going to do in a forest and effectively removes the security that the forest can provide to infantry against artillery and which is just another revolution in the battlefield that the Russians have pioneered here with these weapons that they're using. Uh, which isn't too much of a surprise if you know your Russian history, or, or at least enough of your Russian history. And I know enough. I know enough. They were the ones who pioneered explosive shells, and they did pioneer the lure them in strategy because they, they had the land and the space to do so. They're really good. The Russians are historically really good at warfare, especially in the regions of Eastern Europe. Now, they've had their L's. The 1920s were a very long string of those. But here we go again with the Russians revolutionizing warfare. They're using thermobaric missiles on the forests. These things wipe out everything, so they're much more effective than, say, Napalm or Agent Orange would be. Or white phosphorus, for that matter. And it's instant. It's not like you you get hit and now you're burning forever. No, you're dead. You're dead. You're vaporized. So in a way, it's even more... <laughs> it's more human than those other ones, if, if you can even say that. But that's a very interesting thing to hear, that they're using these really powerful missiles on multiple rocket launch systems, which, one, indicates that they have the production going. They are mass producing these missiles and they do not have anywhere near the same supply constraints as say the Ukrainians would have or anybody in NATO because we don't have the production. We we're running out of regular artillery. Meanwhile, the Russians are mass producing regular artillery. They're using massive amounts, tens of thousands every day, and they have the spare productive capacity to start mass producing thermobaric missiles. So we can see that they are outproducing us. If it wasn't clear already, we can see the Russians are indeed outproducing us because they have so much spare resources and spare production that they're not just outgunning us, out just, not just outgunning the Ukrainians in artillery. They're outgunning us in artillery production, but they're not just outgunning the Ukrainians in artillery. But they have the spare capacity for thermobarics, a brand new weapon. And this is all without the Russian Air Force being present for the majority of this war. It's it's very shocking and impressive at the same time. And speaking of a logistical capacity, the Russians have replaced their head of logistics from the guy who was in charge of the siege of Mariupol. They now have a new guy in charge. We'll see if he's ready for the task 
this is probably in preparation for the Russians doing their own forward movement instead of, you know, just consolidating what they've gained and turning enemy logistics into your own logistics. So we'll see what becomes of this and how well he does. He's probably going to do all right. The Russians, contrary to popular belief, are doing really good with their logistics, as is evident by the fact that they're able to drop tens of thousands of shells on the Ukrainians every day with little difficulty. So we have that going on in Ukraine. And it signals to me, signals to me that Russia's really, really ramping up and get about to get going. If they're using these heavy, this is heavy, heavy artillery. If you're going to use thermal barracks that incinerate everything, that you're not even just going to use a heavy artillery shell. You know, you're going to you're going to use the big one on a multiple rocket launch system. That means they're probably clearing out a lot of defenses. I don't even want to think about what this would do, what a, a salvo of that would do to bunkers or people or soldiers hold up in residential areas. I don't even want to think what that would do to them. You just flatten half the city, just turn it to black ash. And there goes the entire defending force of the Ukrainians. And what's left of the structures will leave the Ukrainians wide open to attack. They're moving their heavy artillery up. And that's how I believe we should view this. I believe we should view these multiple rocket launch systems carrying thermal barracks as these super heavy artillery. These are bunker busters. Well, not literally bunker busters, but this is going to be used for the breakthrough. This is going to be used to absolutely dog on the Ukrainian offensive. Could you imagine a mass of Ukrainians moving forward? into the line of fire of these missiles, and then they just get vaporized? Oh my god. What are the Ukrainians going to do about this? And then what are they going to do afterwards when the Russians start bombarding all their positions, which they will reveal when they start shooting en masse at the Russians? What are they going to do when the Russians start using their air power and these super heavy artillery pieces to destroy and flatten every position that the Ukrainians have? This is the Russians gearing up for offensive capabilities. It doubles as a really good defense, but the Russians are gearing up for offensive capabilities. Their air power is there. Their heavy, heavy, their super heavy artillery is here. The Russians are digging in. They're replacing their logistics guy. I think we're going to see something very flashy and very consequential happen this summer. Potentially even this month. Potentially this month, but really I'm talking about this summer. I think this summer will be the final nail in the coffin for Ukraine. But perhaps the Russians will uh, prove me wrong. They have a very strong habit of bucking whatever trend I attach to them. So I leave with I leave you with a grain of salt for any of my military predictions regarding what the Russian military is going to do. I've learned my lesson. I'm I'm not even going to get into predicting what they're going to do. I, I can say what they have the capability to do, but I won't even bother predicting what they will do. Uh, aside from the, the more general prediction that they will do some kind of an offensive. That's what I think. And even that, they might just say, you know what? We've destroyed enough the Ukrainian army. We're going to leave you be. And then it's like, well, okay, well, no. Well, there goes even that. But yeah, I think we'll... 
we'll leave the Russians there and we'll just watch and see what they do in response to this Ukrainian counteroffensive, which may or may not happen. If the Ukrainians are smart, they won't do it. But even if they're smart, I think that there's a lot of pressure on them to do it. But they have no chance of succeeding. So we will see what becomes of them. We're, we're going to do a lot of waiting and seeing. A lot of waiting and seeing. But that's part of the deal with geopolitics sometimes. Things take time. So we will watch and see. And lastly, I wanted to talk about some latest uh, U.S. diplomatic actions, which is a, a bit of an important topic. One, because I live here. <laughs> and two, because it's important to see what the hegemon is doing at a time when its hege hegemony is being overthrown. Really important. What's America up to? Well, Ar Armenia and Azerbaijan are set to meet in D.C. for peace settlement talks, and these are mainly to normalize relations, as if you know, peace was already achieved between these two. A very, a very tentative peace, which is enforced by Russian peacekeepers in both of their countries, controlling the ways in and out, which is why I said back uh, two years ago, actually. Oh my goodness. That was my first and second episode. Well, we talked about the war on the first and second episode. And then a few weeks later, we talked about how Russia was the big winner of that war. But yeah, Russia had the Caucasus on lockdown. They have troops in Armenia and Azerbaijan and, and Georgia uh, keeping the peace. So I said Russia was the winner. And now we have the United States coming in it, two years later, two years after the fact, almost, talking about negotiating a peace deal. Well, the peace has effectively already been reached, but I suppose it, uh, something official, something formal, might be some type of a W for the United States. We'll see if that is achieved or if this they'll just go their separate ways. And we'll also have to keep our eyes out for the conflict flaring up again after the U.S. gets involved, which will you know, might indicate that the United States might have been up to something during these talks and these meetings. We'll see. But we have the U.S. and the Philippines doing joint drills, uh, joint air drills as well. And this comes after the U.S. opened up a new naval base, or built a new naval base, I should say, in the Philippines, as the United States is going all in on war with China. So what happens to all these bases when we lose? Um, ha <laughs> ha. Hopefully we can get a refund, although I don't think that's going to be very likely. But uh, on a side note, the Taiwanese president visited the U.S. I thought I had talked about that a few, and this happened a few weeks ago. I thought I had talked about that, but then I realized I, in fact, have not. But yeah, Taiwan's president Tsai Ing-wen visited the United States. She came to New York, I believe, and of course she's trying to shore up U.S. support for her country. But, uh, that's not going to go as well as she thinks it is. Sure, she might get, she might get the support. She'll get the war. And she'll get America into that war. But she's not going to win. I, I don't even know if she's going to be there when the war happens. The KMT, uh, the Kuomintang, did very, very well in the latest provincial elections in Taiwan. And it's expected that they're going to do well in the national and the presidential elections 
coming up in 2024. They have their elections in, around April or May. So she's probably not even going to be president at the time when this war happens. But she's laying the groundwork for this war to happen. Like there is still plenty of time to avoid a war between the U.S. and China over Taiwan. And the Taiwanese can take control of the ship if they wanted to, but that would require definitively moving away from the United States. That's what that would require. It would require them to definitively move away from the United States, not move away from China. See, if Taiwan moves away from the United States, the United States isn't going to invade Taiwan. That, then we're not going to do that. Now, we might contemplate, we might feel betrayed, although it'd be a good thing for the Taiwanese and for us, it would be a blessing in disguise to get us away from this war with China. We might feel betrayed, but we wouldn't go fight a war with, China, with Taiwan. We, but if the Taiwanese move away from China definitively and declare independence, that's a war. That is a war. The Chinese have said so. And technically, the two sides are already at war, so it's not like the Chinese would need to declare it. The civil war never ended. Uh, if, you'll, if you know uh, just a smidgen of Chinese history, it's a very, very, very long history. But just enough about Chinese history in the 20th century, you know, Kuomintang, were the technically ruling government of China during the Second World War. Now, the fact that the Kuomintang is a political party in Taiwan and not in the mainland of China tells you everything you need to know about who exactly won that civil war. It was the communists, the People's Republic of China, not the Republic of China. Oh, and by the way, Taiwan's official name is the Republic of China. So the idea that they are not a part of China is just a lie. <laughs> they're not a part of China, but, you know, they're, they're the legitimate government of China. Yeah? Uh, the the mental gymnastics that go into justifying this war and justifying our support for them is uh, a spectacle, to say the least. But the only way they can avoid this war, the only way they can take control of their future again, is if they definitively move away from the United States. That's the only way. Then they can sit and say, hey, we're going to maintain the status quo. There's one China. We agree to that, but we prefer our autonomy over here. And the Chinese will accept that. They've accepted that for, what, 70 years now? There is no need for this war. I, it, it baffles me. You know, this is the most avoidable war I have ever seen. Now, I haven't seen that in many. But of all the wars that you will study in history, this is going to go down in history as one of the most avoidable wars. And uh, you'll have to find an honest historian for this, not... Uh, oh, we have to stand with Taiwan type person. And there'll be inevitably be a plethora of those people who will immediately come run defense for the U.S. defense of Taiwan, say it was the right thing to do just at the wrong time and blah, 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 you know. But if you ever find a, an honest historian sometime a few years or maybe in a few decades down the lines, they will tell you this is one of the most avoidable wars in human history, like at so many levels, it just does not need to happen. And at so many levels, it can easily be avoided. It's not, you don't even have to go very far. You don't have to go far out of your way. If the United States, you know, stopped pressing China, the war doesn't happen. If the United States stopped sailing destroyers 
through the Taiwan Strait. That doesn't happen. If the Thai, if the U.S. stops, you know, propagandizing about fighting war with China, the the war doesn't happen. If the U.S. stops building military bases around China, the war doesn't happen. If the U.S. stops advocating for Taiwanese independence, the war doesn't happen. If the Taiwanese say it were to advocate for the status quo, the war doesn't happen. If the Taiwanese move away from the United States, the war doesn't happen. On so many levels, uh, the war doesn't need to happen, and it can be so easily avoided. Like I, I previously said in my other talks about the war for Taiwan, that the Taiwanese, you know, they weren't necessarily in the driver's seat, and they're not right now, but they can take the wheel. They, the, uh, they can take the wheel. They might be in the back seat far away, as far away from the wheel as you could be, but they can take control of this ship. It would require them to do something that is common sense. If it is the United States pushing you into this war, and then you have to move away from the United States. The Chinese will let you go if you agree to the status quo. If you agree to status quo and you move away from the United States, well, then the United States isn't going to invade you. So the threat of war goes away the second you move away from the United States. It goes away immediately. And you throw into the trash can all these grand ideas of a of this grand anti-China coalition featuring Taiwan as its uh, jewel in the crown. Where we're going to have Japan, Taiwan, the Philippines, Australia, New Zealand, Vietnam, and India all united in one crusade against China. The communist Chinese live in fear of the... <laughs> of Asian NATO. Like, is that what you want for your country? You want you want to be a pawn? You want to be the staging ground for some potential US invasion of China? And by staging ground, I mean a pincushion for all the Chinese missiles that are going to come your way if this war ever does happen? Like, think about your economy. Think about your people. If this war happens, it's the death of the Taiwanese economy. You are an island a hundred miles away from China, and you're going to side with the country thousands of miles away against the country that <laughs> is right next to you. It might not be a comfortable arrangement to cozy up to China, but if you live right next to them, it's not a very smart idea to go cozying up to foreign powers thousands of miles away. Cuba almost got flattened in atomic fire for doing the same. Like we have history to go off of here. Recent history. It's uh, on so many levels, this war just does not need to happen. So many levels and in so many ways. And it's just such easy, simple changes. No, I say easy, simple. I and mean, there's political realities, you know, the like. But I think the Taiwanese are waking up to who's really responsible for them getting into this war. It's not a matter of them fighting for their independence. It's a matter of the United States wanting to fight China. And I think more of them are starting to see that. And so more of them are saying, we're, we're going to go with the Kuomintang. Of course, we're going to have to see how the presidential elections go to see if that's how this is really, if that's what the real trend is, or if, or if they go hard for the Democratic Progress Party, the DPP. We'll have to wait for the, the, those results to come in. I think Taiwan is wising up 
to who their real enemy is. And it's not necessarily China. The, the Chinese, the only reason the Chinese are even doing war drills against the Taiwanese at this point in the game is because the, the United States won't leave China alone. And we keep talking about using Taiwan as means of defending China against the United States. But China regards Taiwan as a part of China because it is. And the Taiwanese say so. That's their official position. The official position of the United States, China, and Taiwan is that there is one China and that Ty both Taiwan and China are a part of that one China. So how, how does it come into... It's just so... How do we get to the point where we're like, yeah, you're a part of China, but we're going to defend you from China because you're a sovereign country. Yeah? It's so goofy. So, so goofy. But any back to the back to the, the, the meat here. <laughs> I've gone on a whole tangent. I did a whole segment last week talking about that war. But uh, I guess... Uh, I'll double down on my two cents there. But yeah, um, we have Ferdinand Marcos Jr., the president of the Philippines. He'll be meeting with Biden sometime in the near future, uh, likely talking about future military cooperation. <laughs> but I mean, I guess it's worth his while to keep his options open. I would say that they'd all be better off closing up to China, but everyone has their own interests. The Philippines is an island. They are a good distance away from China. Maybe they want to have their own sovereignty, and they have the the word, the breathing room to do so. But what I feel is a more consequential thing that the new president of the Philippines is doing is that he's going to also be doing talks with China. He wants to open up a direct line of communication with China, and they're currently he's currently aiming to work with China on fishing rights in the South China Sea. And just and right right there you can see how simple this South China Sea dispute was. Direct lines of communication and you hash it out point by point. Point by point. I mean if v I was about to say Vietnam, if the Philippines and China hash out an agreement on fishing rights in the South China Sea well, then they have a deal and then they can build off that deal and they can build off the, that deal and they can go, oh, this is your, this is how we're going to partition the sea. You get this much and here's how much we're going to get. We're the bigger country, so we're going to take more. But, you know, we'll leave that to you. We're going to leave this this little area over here to you. And if anyone has anything to say about it, we have all these lovely artificial islands with military bases on them. So we can actually help you enforce your claim to the sea. How about that? And that'll, if the Philippines and the Chinese get together and make a deal on how they're going to partition the sea, that's a diplomatic revolution in the region. Now everyone else has to start making deals. And you get people talking to one another on what they're going to do about this instead of just seeing that there's a problem and doing nothing about it, hoping that a U.S. carrier battle group is going to stop some conflict from happening. No, you, you got to talk. You got to talk. And it was so simple. It was so simple. Like, I'm upset with myself for not seeing it. It was that simple. But we can see what the solution to the South China Sea dispute is. And this should have been done a while ago. And it's likely going to be the best way to de-escalate the tensions in the region. Now, Vietnam is not going to like any agreement made by any of the powers because uh if you ever see what Vietnam's claims are 
to the South China Sea, you'll see exactly why the United States doesn't need to be there. Like, the Philippines, Vietnam, and China are some of the biggest offenders in terms of the land that they, well, the, the area that they want to have under their control. Like, everyone focuses on the nine-dash line from the Chinese. Look at the Vietnamese claims. They, they claim nearly the whole sea for little Vietnam. It's like, yeah, you're, you're not going to give any of your neighbors anything? Yeah, you're going you're gonna to take as much as China wants? Who are you? <laughs> I mean, I get they have one of the longest coastlines in the region. But my gosh, you're going to take the whole thing? It's, it's wild. But I think that the Philippines and China getting together and talking about basic things like fishing rights, you know, the things that are being disputed, fishing rights, resource rights, where exactly the territorial boundary is, and we can start setting up some buoys so that everyone knows where one side ends and the other begins, you know, things like that. Then everyone else will have to start talking as well. And you can de-escalate the situation through diplomacy, through speaking with your neighbors instead of we're going to we're going to have a naval arms race because for a while there was a naval arms race going on. But it seems like everyone's realized that they're not going to compete with the Chinese on this. So, sure, it's nice to have an extra destroyer or two, but the Chinese have hundreds. They have an, a larger navy than, than the United States, so it's not exactly a good idea. So, yeah, I think this is the solution. This is the way forward. And that, I believe, is everything that I have listed out. Again, I apologize for this being a, a bit of a messier episode, but uh, I couldn't really lock in on any specific thing that I wanted to talk about. There was a lot going on. Uh, nothing nothing really, really major that I could throw out there as a, as a main topic. So I just went with some overarching topics and we just talked. So yeah, that's all I've got for you today. We have major changes going on. We have peace coming in the Middle East. We have the Ukraine war with the Russians heating it up, quite literally. And we have the U.S. pursuing certain diplomatic actions, although I barely talked about the U.S. I was talking about, talking about Asia. But yes, yes, I see lots of good solutions coming along the way. And I hope that these positive developments, even if they're not headed by the United States, I hope that they continue. But that is all I have for you today. I do hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast, my lovely listeners. The world is changing, and we are going to have fun watching it together. Now, I've been your host, Sean Wade, and you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So till we meet again next Monday, servus.